Our scripture reading this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 19. Deuteronomy 6, beginning at verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then from Leviticus 19, beginning at verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is God's word. Father, would you please add your blessing to both the reading and now the preaching of the word that we, your people, might come and see Jesus as the great redeemer, our hope, our savior, our life. We pray it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Surely one of the best known of Jesus' parables is that of the Good Samaritan. I chose this text for my last one here with you for a couple of reasons. It is a text which takes us to the heart of the gospel. So I wanted to end there because I think that is my principal duty as a preacher, to preach Jesus and him crucified. 
It's a text which it appears to me is often misinterpreted, misunderstood, misapplied. One that I think maybe I can provide some benefit and encouragement to you to remind you again to be sure and look carefully at the Bible when you read it. And it's one that I hope will lift your souls up to the greatness of who our Savior is. We name hospitals after this unnamed man. Ministries of service are founded upon his model. And the whole idea of being a good Samaritan has entered directly into our culture as a recognized standard of compassion and mercy. Even today, if someone picks up a hitchhiker and then is robbed, when it's reported on the news, you will hear this. She was only trying to be a good Samaritan. Despite its ubiquity, however, I find it appears to me that few study the parable well enough to discover its main point. It seems to me Christians assume Jesus is teaching that good people do good things for the needy. Both Christians and I guess those who would not consider themselves Christians believe the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches that good people do good things for the needy. And the practical application that I find most people take away from this text is this, some vague sense of guilt that we ought to be picking up hitchhikers, though if we tell the truth, we're afraid to. But I believe such an application misses Jesus' point. In fact, I find that we may make ourselves inadvertently ask the very same question that the lawyer asked seeking to justify himself, is the hitchhiker my neighbor? So, Today, instead of making the parable of the Good Samaritan the measure of good works by which we make ourselves acceptable to God, I would like to suggest there is a different message here if we will listen carefully and allow God to tell us both the parable again and the point. I even have heard pastors debating at presbytery meetings and other places whether our mercy ministry should be limited to the deserving poor or to just those within the church. I don't know who the deserving poor are. I don't know if they deserve to be poor or they deserve not to be. But it is debated. It was debated at my seminary. It's debated, debated in Presbytery. We often get to the wrong point. And when we instead come and let this text speak what Jesus intended it to speak to us, I think we will find that God asks us to see our unneighborliness. Our unneighborliness so that we might come to Christ for new hearts. Now, as with most parables, Jesus' teaching arises out of a problem which needs a God-centered solution. There's a problem, and it needs a God-centered solution. That's the first point I'd like you to notice today. We must examine ourselves for the problem which prompts the parable. We must examine ourselves for the problem which prompts the parable. Listen again, or listen please, to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 29. This is the introduction to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we want to examine this situation here. And find out what the real problem is so that we can look in our own hearts and see if that problem 
is, lies within us also. Luke 10, beginning at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, that's Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do that and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Notice that the man asking this question, according to our text, is a lawyer. The word nomikos means specifically an expert in the law. Someone who knows the law well and how to apply it. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia is a, is a work, a reference work, a, a standard dictionary that pastors use to study the Greek words and to understand what they mean. And it says of a lawyer in Bible times this. The work of the lawyers, frequently spoken of as scribes, also known as doctors of the law, was first of all that of jurist. A jurist is a preeminent judge or lawyer. Their business was threefold, to study and interpret the law, to instruct the Hebrew youth in the law, and to decide questions of the law. The first two they did as scholars and teachers, the last as advisors in some court. Now, because in the time of Jesus, in the Old Testament days, there was such an intimate connection between civil law and the Bible or religious law, the modern equivalent here is not Scott Polsky. Not that we don't love Scott, but this is not the kind of lawyer that they're talking about here. Not a Supreme Court judge, not that kind of attorney. Today's counterpart would be more close to a seminary professor or a visiting um, uh, scholar that we invite to a Christian conference that we do, or even a pastor should know the law in this way. But here's the point. This man is a theologian who knows Old Testament law. And here's the key. His heart has grown hard from thinking of himself as obedient to it. This man is an Old Testament theologian. He's a theologian who knows Old Testament law. And his heart has grown hard from thinking of himself as obedient to it. Now you might ask, why, Pastor, are you telling me this? Because here you have to understand that in order to understand the motive behind his question. When he asks Jesus about eternal life, he's not coming as a sincere seeker. He is examining Jesus to find out whether Jesus knows the right answer. This is a presbytery exam. And Jesus is coming up for ordination and the man is saying, let me test you to see if you know the right answers. Luke tells us that very thing when he says something to us, he records something for us in the text that we could not know, only God can know it. 
It says in verse 25, look at Luke 10, 25 again. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test or to test him, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The motive behind the quiz is essential to understanding the encounter because, and this is important, Jesus, when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, does not answer the man's question. He is addressing the man's heart motive. And if you think that the parable is the answer to the question, how do I inherit eternal life, then you're going to need to pick up a lot more hitchhikers. But that's not the question Jesus is answering. And Luke tells us that when he says, let me tell you about the man's motive. He is putting Jesus to the test. Now, two applications that we need to make as we get started already. Two applications, two takeaways. First, we must ask this question. We must ask this question. This was the Presbytery exam question precisely because it was so much debated and it was of such serious consequence. Yes, this man's motives are bad, and we're going to address that in a minute. We'll talk about the fact that his motives are bad. But even though his motives are bad, he is asking the preeminently important question. The central issue is how does one obtain eternal life? J.C. Ryle, a well-known and very beneficial uh, pastor from the previous century said this, speaking of the question here, what do we do to get eternal life? It is a question which deserves the principal attention of every man, woman, and child on earth. We are sinners, dying sinners, and sinners who are going to be judged after death. How shall our sins be pardoned? What shall we do to escape the damnation of hell? Whither shall we flee from the wrath to come? What must we do to be saved? These are inquiries which people of every rank ought to put to themselves and never rest until they find an answer. Many questions flit through our mind on a daily basis. And I find many children, especially raised in the church, fail to press this question upon their souls. They live, you live, you're raised in the church, you're raised around Christian parents, you live in an environment where you just assume that you know the answer. And so you never get around to asking the question. I would plead with the children of the church, ask this question. Make sure you know what you must do to inherit eternal life. Are matters of salvation critical in your thinking? Are you asking important questions? But then second, by way of application already, we must ask this question. That's the first. But then second, we must examine our motives. (laughs) I hope you noticed how deceptive is the heart when it comes to matters of eternal consequence. Here he is asking the most important question in the world. And he's not just asking a question, is he? He is talking to God. He is standing beside life incarnate. He could reach out and touch the eternal one. And what does he decide to do with this incredible opportunity? 
Hey, I got a quiz for you. I have a test for you. The text says the lawyer put him to the test. The word there is ekperadzo, which doesn't help much at all except for this. That word is used one other place in all the Gospels. One other place. Here, one other place in all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know what it is? Satan came to tempt Jesus. The only other place that word is used in the Bible, in the, in the Gospels. That's a serious thing this man is doing here. Matthew Henry writes, This was a good question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But it lost all goodness when it was proposed with an ill design or a very mean one. Note, it is not enough to speak of the things of God and to inquire about them, we must do so with a suitable concern. If we speak of eternal life and the way to it in a careless manner, merely as matter of discourse or especially as matter of dispute, we do but take the name of God in vain, as the lawyer here did. I want to leave you as I move on to Cincinnati pleading with you to ask the right question. The question of central import, the most important issue, how do I receive eternal life? But I plead with you, beware the deceptiveness of your own heart. For the heart little desires the truth from God. So, this man intended to test the Lord. How does Jesus respond to such impudence? Verse 26 of Luke 10. He said, that's Jesus says to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, that's a surprising answer. At least it surprises me. This man wants to be saved, apparently. But Jesus does not say anything about the gospel of grace or salvation by faith alone or even that he doesn't even say to the man, I am the way, the truth and the life. Instead, he points the man to the law of all things. And what it, it just makes me want to, you know, I know this is impudent, but to reach out and grab Jesus by the, uh, the collar and say, what are you thinking? Here's a guy who wants to get saved, and you miss your chance to preach the gospel. What are you thinking, Jesus? And is not, well, let me not say it that way. The answer, I believe, is exactly what Pastor Kaiser was saying earlier, although I forget now who you quoted about Machen, that the problem with the gospel is we don't know the law well enough. And so here is what Jesus is thinking. No one can be saved from the law until they are condemned by the law. No one can be saved from the law until they have been condemned by the law. Now, this man knew the rules. He was an expert. But he was not interested in salvation from the condemnation which the law brought against him. He was testing Jesus, yes, to find out whether Jesus possessed salvation. He was a theologian. He believed that salvation meant that you knew the Old Testament law and that you did it. But he never considered himself a lawbreaker. Now, of course, Christ knows what's going on in the man's heart. 
So he begins to turn the conversation in a different direction, doesn't he? He wants to help the lawyer understand something different about the law. Something about this law. He values the law so highly, and yet he does not know what it really says. So how does the lawyer respond? That's in verse 27. The man answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The law expert correctly pulls from two passages, which I read earlier for us from Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord. Deuteronomy 19.18, love your neighbor. These teach that the effect, the effect of true religion is love for God, that perfect vertical relationship. And love for mankind, the perfect horizontal relationship. These two kind of summarize everything that the Bible teaches. God has made us. We belong to him. And he is perfectly good to us. And we owe him everything. We owe him the passionate love and devotion of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because God, God has made all people in his own image, we are to love them. We are not to reject any of them. We are not to treat what he has made in his own image with contempt, but we are to love people. That's a perfect summary of the duty, of all the duty of mankind. Love God, love people. And that's what Jesus says in verse 28. Listen to how Jesus responds. He says, well, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. You've you've got it, chap. That's it. Just go out and love God perfectly and love your neighbor absolutely perfectly. And well, Well, then you'll definitely deserve eternal life because you will be really good. Jesus is engaging here in what we sometimes call pre-evangelism or pre-counseling. He's reminding the law expert of the unbending, unflinching, unwavering, uncompromising standard of God's law. The law is perfect. It is holy. It is good. Romans 7.12. And Galatians 3.12. Speaking about those who obey the law, Paul says, The man who does these things will live. Just go and obey the law and you will live. The standard has never changed. The standard has never changed. It is by full and perfect obedience that eternal life is earned. Now, there are two responses to this. One response is to hear the law, to notice what it says about what's going on in myself, and to condemn myself and cry out for mercy. To say to Jesus, yes, I can read Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. I see that what the law requires is perfect love to God and perfect love to all of mankind. I see that the law is perfect and spiritual. Everything it says is good. The problem is I am a slave of sin. I do not want to do that. I am not going to do that. I cannot do that. Will you save me? from my sin, and from myself. That's one possible response, to condemn yourself and to cry out to God for help. But that's not the response we hear, is it? Luke 10, 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Matthew Henry again. Observe his care to avoid the conviction which was now ready to fasten upon him. When Christ said, do this and you will live, 
he began to be aware that Christ intended to draw from him both an acknowledgement that he had not done this and therefore an inquiry as to what he should do to get his sins pardoned and an acknowledgement that he could not do this perfectly in the future by any strength of his own and therefore an inquiry which way he might fetch strength to enable him to do it. But he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? Carefully note the implication of this question. This man is turning to Jesus and saying, Granted, teacher, I can see it in the Bible. We are to love our neighbors. Leviticus requires it. What I'm asking you about is the limit. (laughs) Where are the fences? How high is this bar I must jump? I can exercise. I can get a running head start. I just need to know how much I have to do. What is the limit, the subset of humanity that I must actually love so I can get busy meeting the requirements of the law? Who is my neighbor? So when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, he shows that the problem is not, listen carefully because this is where we miss it, the problem is not the definition of your neighbor. The problem is a lack of love in our hearts. The problem is not the definition of the neighbor. The problem is a lack of love in our hearts. So, so far in point one of today's message, I've asked you to see the problem which prompts the parable. This man thought he obeyed the law and he wanted to justify himself. And I'm asking you to consider where in your heart does that same problem exist? Then second, we must examine the parable for the problem which is in our hearts. We've looked at the man's background, the issue he brought to Jesus, the way he tested what was going on in his heart, and the summary sentence of um, Luke, knowing only what God knows, looking in and saying the man really wanted to justify himself. We see the problem. Now we examine the parable for Jesus' answer to the problem. You've heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. Many of you have. But listen again. Luke chapter 10. Jesus answered him. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor 
to the man who fell among the robbers. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, Jesus, I believe, does not tell this parable so that we can build hospitals. Though I searched for good Samaritan hospital in quotation marks, and there were more than 100,000 hits on the Internet. This parable, I believe, has not told you so that you would know what to name your church. Though, in quotation marks again, good Samaritan church re, uh, matched on 12,700 websites. It is not preserved for us in the Bible so that we would know how to establish good Samaritan ministries, though there are more than 13,000 of those listed in Google. Why is this parable given? This parable is given because the man wanted to justify himself. J.C. Ryle is correct. He was a self-righteous man and flattered himself that he could deserve eternal life by his own doings. Do you see? Will you see today within your own heart the same desire and flattery? It is part of our fallen nature to constantly seek to justify ourselves. Adam and Eve began it when they sowed fig leaves to cover themselves. And this expert in the law continued it when he asked Jesus to limit the extent of the love which the law demanded from him. And I do it when I create excuses for my failures to fully obey the law of God. Just two weeks ago, in the journal First Things, there was an editorial Reflecting on this problem, Joseph Bottom, walking through New York City, writes this. As he walked down Park Avenue, he said, There was a woman screaming on Park Avenue, flecks of saliva spraying from her mouth as she raged into her cell phone. It's not my fault. Over and over, like the high-pitched squeal of a power saw cutting bricks, it's not my fault. Later the same day, Joseph Bottom says, I was in line at the ATM machine at my bank and I overheard a man talking loudly on his cell phone. It's not my fault, he explained in a confident boom. I'm just the kind of person who has to keep after things. Joseph Bottom writes, commenting on it, What is it about self-justification? That makes it seem so false. It's not my fault. The cry we have made every day since Adam took the apple. Down somewhere in the belly there's an awareness of just how wrong the world is. How fallen and broken and incomplete. This is the guilty knowledge. The failure of innocence against which we snarl and rage. It's just the way things are. There's nothing I can do. I didn't start the fight. It's not my fault. The Good Samaritan exposes the self-justification which taints every heart. Now, with that in mind, please notice the standard of the parable. Because Jesus here refuses to lower the requirements of the law. He does not let this man off one bit. The scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day said, It's okay to hate your enemies. 
just love those who are your friends. They limited the word neighbor so that they might fancy themselves keepers of the law. What does Jesus do? He, just, he, he brings the law out for fresh air. He exalts it. He, he expands its reach and lets it influence and affect every person that you ever, met, ever meet. He insists that the only ones, he insists that the only ones who keep the law are those who care for every person they ever meet. When this man read Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he read it with the emphasis on the wrong word. He opened his text and he said, love your neighbor as yourself. wonder who my neighbor is. Is it the people that I really like? Or is it the people that are far away that I never have to actually talk to? It must not be my wife or my children or my parents. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is that neighbor I must love? Jesus says, you don't know how to read the Bible. When you open up Leviticus, it doesn't say, love your neighbor as yourself. And you ask, who is my neighbor? The Bible says this, love your neighbor as yourself. And ask this, why am I not loving? Why am I not loving? John, that's why John in 1 John could write this. If you have any of the world's goods, that's money, clothing, food, and you see a brother in need, and yet you close your heart to him, how could the love of God abide in you? John is taking a Leviticus and applying it in a very specific example. The heart of a person who knows God is filled with love because God's love in us makes us love people who are made in God's image, not limit our love to a few friends. This is what God requires. Go and show mercy to the whole world. Now with that as the purpose of the parable and its exposing of our hearts, let's go to the third point and how do we apply this parable to ourselves? How do we apply this? I don't think the first application is to pick up hitchhikers. Because I believe the parable of the Good Samaritan is not, it is not first and foremost a commandment to go and do anything. The parable of the Good Samaritan insists that you cannot do everything. No matter what you do, you always fall short. You cannot get there from here. No matter how hard we try, we will always fail to keep the law. We are under judgment. That's why we need the Lord's table. That's why we need a Savior. Will you acknowledge the lack of love in yourself? Now, I'm sure that in a room this size, there are some of us who this very minute are thinking, I wonder who I'm supposed to go and bandage. I wonder if I have to use real wine and real oil on people with broken wounds, or can we use antibiotics? What, what do we? Am I supposed to pick up these hitchhikers? I wonder if I should give some money to Habitat for Humanity this Christmas. Maybe you are asking, who is your neighbor? So you can show them some mercy and finally free your conscience from guilt. Maybe you, maybe some of you sitting here today are still trying to justify yourselves. Maybe you remain bondage in, it, it, remain in bondage to fear because you're worried 
that you might not measure up. And so I, I need to tell this to you. You do not measure up. Okay, will you hear that for me? You do not measure up. This is going to be hard. At first it seems like terrible news, but I'm leaving. (laughs) There are no good Samaritans in this room. There aren't any. Some of you fancied yourselves good Samaritans. Let me just tell it like it is. There are no good Samaritans in this room. Now, as bad as that might seem at first, it turns out that it's very freeing. Because here's the good news. You don't have to be. You can't be. You're not going to be. Why don't you give up? Why don't you just say, you know what? I'm not going to ever fulfill that law. I'm never going to be in a place where no matter who it is, beaten and bruised on the side of the road, I'm always going to give all of my money to take care of them and fix them. Jesus, given this standard, I cannot love my neighbor. When God breaks our hard hearts and shows us that we do not, we could not, and we would not keep the law, we may at first feel despair. But that is the time for freedom, friends. Yes, it is true. In this text, Jesus asks you to quit trying to justify yourself. He does. He does say that. Just don't do it anymore. Don't think to your own self. Don't, don't try to show it to the rest of us. And don't say it to God, I'm going to grip my teeth and be a good Samaritan. If you will stop justifying yourself, Jesus offers forgiveness for your lack of love. Jesus offers forgiveness. He says, I knew you weren't a good Samaritan. I didn't tell the parable to make you into one. I told it so you would realize what I already know. You're not. I will give you mercy. Jesus loved people perfectly so that he could forgive unloving people like me and like you. Will you come to Christ today? Not to test him, but to be loved by him. But then second, respond to the demand of love. First, we must repent. We must say, I don't have that. I can't keep that standard. I'm not going to. I don't really want to. You want to know the truth? Repent of that. Admit it. Confess it. And ask Christ for forgiveness. But then second, respond to the demand of love. Because now that we are forgiven, Jesus requires that we go and love our neighbor as ourself. <laughs> you may be saying, oh, wait a second, Pastor. You just got through saying, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do that. I could not do it. Yes, that's true. But Jesus makes his own into lovers of the poor and needy. This is the effect of union with Christ. The same mercy which forgives us of our failures, also makes us into merciful people. And you know, this is where it gets hard, isn't it? Because if we're honest, we're going to have to admit, I, I'm pretty selfish. I don't really want to love other people. If, if I were to, to go to God and say, I, I really want you to make me concerned for the needs of others, I'm afraid that nobody might be concerned about my needs. Some of us will have trouble asking God to make us happy, pleasing others. Some of us are going to have a difficulty saying, Jesus, I want to be the kind of person that never can pass by suffering without doing something about it. Listen to John Piper commenting on what God intends. God's intention is to call into being a loving, 
compassionate, merciful person whose heart summons him irresistibly into action when there is suffering within his reach. A person who will interrupt his schedule, risk embarrassment, use up his oil and wine, and part with his money for the sake of a suffering stranger. Become that person, Jesus says, and you will know you have eternal life. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Is that the person you want to be? If that's not the person you want to be, then you need to not ask salvation from this Jesus. Because the Jesus you want is not the Jesus of the Bible. Here is the main point of the parable. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. It's not you. Jesus is the one who comes and rescues the hurt and broken on the side of the road. Those who follow Christ are not those who do good works for the needy so that God will finally love them. Those who who know Christ love to serve their neighbor because their Savior found them beaten up by sin, lying on the side of the road. And he came and bandaged your wounds. He came and poured on you the oil of healing. He took care of your every need. He is the Good Samaritan. You think about that. Father, would you please give us a deeper understanding of the law and of the grace which is there in Christ that we might not be those who seek to justify ourselves because we know that we are fully accepted in the Beloved. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.